back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. Today is Westminster Wednesday, and so we're taking a break from the book of Jonah to look at the Westminster Confession, which we've been going through once a week, paragraph by paragraph, wrestling with what it says and learning and being strengthened in our faith by what these faithful men who have gone before us have put down as a summary of what the Bible teaches. Today we're at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 4. Chapter 3 is all about God's eternal decree. That is how he has ordained, how he has decreed everything, and how far his decree goes, what it includes, and, and all of those big questions. We've started diving into this idea of predestination and his foreordination of the salvation of man and, and angels, as it talks about in paragraph three. And today we get up to paragraph four, which gets into this doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, which is where for a lot of people, these ideas get particularly difficult. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read this section and offer a few thoughts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who have gone before us and faithfully summarized what it teaches. We pray that you would strengthen us as we look now at these doctrines, and as we think about these doctrines together, that we might learn more and more to believe you, to trust you, to rest in your sovereign grace. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. So this is what Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 4 says. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So I'm going to go back and read paragraph 3 so that we have the context of what exactly the Westminster Divines are talking about here. It says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. So paragraph 3 establishes the reality of what we call predestination, or what we talk about when we're talking about the foreknowledge of God, the decree of God, the, the foreordination of God, that he has foreordained certain things. Now, paragraph four gives the particularity of that. These angels and men, thus predestined foreordained, so looking back to what was just said, are particularly and unchangeably designed. In other words, there, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans, there are some created, some vessels created for glorious use and others for inglorious use. There, there are some created for mercy and some created for wrath. And we struggle with that idea because it, it strikes our kind of human sensibilities of fairness as shockingly unfair. And so this is another place where we come back and we have to remember, as Paul reminds us, just exactly who we are and who God is. He, he asks us, well, what is created say to the one who has made it, why did you make me this way? Who are you to answer back to God, he asks us. In other words, he's calling us to remember the right order of things. There is a creator and there is a creature. 
And by definition, the creator is sovereign over the creature. I paint a little bit, or at least used to, I haven't in a while, but at no point did I think the painting was determining itself. Why? Well, because it wasn't capable of determining itself. Where I put paint, where I moved the brush, where I moved the, the paint knife, the, the, that's where the paint went. If I wanted the paint to, painting to be blue, it was blue. If I wanted it to be red, it was red. If I wanted it to, to have a circular shape to it, so that's what it had. Paul is telling us that this is how we need to think about ourselves before God. He is the creator, we are the creature. Now, he also, if we go back to Romans chapter 1, reminds us why we struggle so much with this, or really reminds us that we struggle so much with this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, the reason we struggle with these doctrines is because we have a tendency, like everyone who has gone before us and everyone who will come after us, to exalt the creature over the creator. Thinking we have become wise, we become fools, and this is what we do. So when we come back to now, paragraph four, these angels, thus predestined for are particularly and unchangeably designed. God has designed all people, all creatures for his particular, predetermined, unchangeable purposes. And he says their number, that is those who are predestined and foreordained to everlasting life, is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. In other words, all of this is already set. The, the number isn't going to change. Now, why is this important? Some people say that if we believe this, it makes us lazy in, in evangelism. And at times, we must be honest, it has. However, that is not the necessary result of this doctrine. It, it may be an anecdotal result of this doctrine, but it's not the necessary result of this doctrine. Rather, what it should do when it comes to evangelism is give us confidence in preaching the gospel because we know that when the gospel goes out, it will draw those who have been created for redemption. God will work through the preaching of his word as he has promised to do to draw those whom he has created for redemption. Here's what this does. 
On the one hand, we affirm that the Bible instructs us to go to make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing and teaching them, as Matthew 28 tells us. We affirm that we have been called to do that. We don't know who has and hasn't been predestined and foreordained to everlasting life. We don't know the number or the individuals that make up that number. What we know is that God has sent us out and the preaching of the word is the means by which he will draw this particular group of people to himself. So really what this should do in evangelism is give us confidence because we know two things. God does have an unchangeable number of people that he has redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we know that the means by which he will draw those people to himself, of whom none will be lost, none will be forgotten, none will be passed over, the means by which he will draw those people to himself is the proclamation of the gospel. So this shouldn't make us lazy in evangelism. It should give us absolute confidence in evangelism. This also reminds us that we don't have to go and evangelize from a place of guilt. Because if the number is certain and definite so that it can be neither de increased nor diminished, then we don't have to go and do evangelism out of a guilt that maybe if I don't go, if I don't preach on the street, or if I don't do this, or if I don't find a way into this conversation with this person or that person or the other person, that somehow they will be lost when they could have been saved. No, that, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all whom God the Father has given to the Son, that of all of those, how many will Jesus lose? None, not a single one. So see, these doctrines, they comfort us because they remind us of who God actually is and what it is that he actually does and on whom our salvation actually depends. And when we see that our salvation and that the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation depends on God's work, we find rest. We, we find that Christianity really is all about God graciously working in his people's lives through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I understand that these doctrines are difficult. Even in the Bible, when Jesus announced these in John chapter 6, people's response was, that's a difficult doctrine, and they walked away from him. See, we haven't been enlightened in such a way that we've come up with some new struggle with this doctrine. Jesus' followers, his hearers, didn't like this idea any more than we do. We're simply, when we struggle with this doctrine and even at times deny this doctrine or walk away from Christianity in the name of this doctrine, all we're doing is following in the footsteps of the unfaithful who have gone before us that responded the exact same way to Jesus. That's a difficult doctrine, they said. Who can accept that? All we're doing is exalting the creature over the creator, thinking that somehow he must bow to our wills and our sense of fairness and justice. But the Bible says it's just the opposite. 
We're the creature. We serve him. And if in his grace, we are those whom he draws to himself through the preaching of the word, we ought to praise him all the more and glory in his sovereign grace and announce it. Because through that, he will draw all that he has redeemed through Christ to himself. Might we find rest in this rich but admittedly difficult doctrine. Amen. Thank you.